From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In case you have preconceived ideas about who becomes addicted to opioid painkillers, my next guest is in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate, and he made time to stop into HealthLink on Air. Dr. Travis Reeder is director of the Master of Bioethics degree program and a research scholar at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. His most recent book is a personal one. It's called In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reeder. Thanks for having me. Now, your book has been described as a memoir of opioid dependence and withdrawal. At what point during your experience did you realize that you would be writing about it? Oh my gosh. Uh, It was a long, slow dawning. Um, Certainly not while I was going through the withdrawal, which was a very traumatic time in my life. But uh, in the wake of it, you know, I, I came out of withdrawal. I was sick for 29 days. And in the wake of that, um, there were stages, right? And the first stage was just like blissful gratitude. Like I escaped the grips of this medication, which had really in my mind kind of taken on a life of their own. They'd really gotten their hooks into me. And then I got angry really quickly because uh, I looked back on my experience and thought, how did my doctors not prevent this from happening? How did they not help me to get off this medication they'd prescribed? And then as I gained some distance and cooled off a little bit, you know, I I finally started sharing my story with some colleagues and some close friends. And they would say things like, you know, you're a bioethicist, like you, you spend your career looking for ethical problems in the healthcare system and in medicine. Sure seems like you found one, maybe you could do some good with this. Um, And it took a while to imagine that I might share what felt like a really private, really intimate sort of moment in my life and not just mine, my family's life. Um, But over the course of a couple of years, I eventually published a paper for the journal Health Affairs that got some attention. I did a TED talk. I started speaking more about it. um, And the book kind of came about organically as a result. Can you tell us how you became addicted to opioids? Well, so, uh, you know, a couple of things that we can talk about. Um, I don't think that I was addicted to opioids. I think I was dependent on them. And um, that's, it, it may sound like semantics, but it turns out in my work, I think it's actually pretty important because everybody who's exposed to a high enough dose of opioids for a long enough time will develop dependence. That's how brains work. And so when you flood the brain's opioid system with uh, enough opioids, the brain is a fantastic learning machine and it tries to adjust to that experience so that it doesn't react as violently. And that means that you form a dependence. And when you take away those drugs, uh, your brain kind of screams for it because it became accustomed to it. And that's the experience of, of withdrawal. So you can imagine dependence is just the physiological fact that you become accustomed to a drug and it precipitates withdrawal. But a really important thing to note is that addiction does not happen to everybody who experiences enough of a drug for a long enough time. We don't know what the exact rate is, but it's somewhere between like one and 10%. A pretty often often cited number is something like 6% of people exposed to a really addictive drug like opioids will develop an actual addiction. And what that is pointing to is that you develop behavioral problems. You start to crave, you have a compulsive, uh, you know, looking for the drug, thinking about it all the time. You might start to act out even in ways that you know will hurt you. So you have bad consequences and you do it anyway. So you risk jail time. You risk losing your family. You risk losing your job, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's like the kind of first big thing, thinking about dependence and addiction. And the reason that's important is because 
solving each of them takes different tools. If everybody will develop a dependence, then every surgeon needs to know how to prevent it, right? Right. Because that's just how brains work. Whereas addiction is going to happen more rarely. And so we need to have, but it's way more intense. It requires all of this behavioral intervention. So all that to say, um, I developed a dependence and my doctor should have known that I would because I had a traumatic injury. I was in a motorcycle accident. My foot was, for lack of a better term, blown apart. And, um, and they were either going to have to cut it off, they're going to have to amputate, or they were going to reconstruct. And it turns out they were able to reconstruct it. But that took months, uh, multiple surgeries, so lots of re-traumatizing, and that means lots of high-dose opioids for a long time. So I developed dependence over the course of about two months, and then I tapered the opioids over the course of another month. So I spent about three months altogether on some dose of opioids. At what point did you realize that you were dependent? Um, So I never gave it a thought for those first two months. My only real advice from my doctors was to stay ahead of the pain. I had a very severe, very traumatic set of injuries. They were worried about me getting behind the pain and then needing a lot more drugs to catch up to it. And so when I eventually went home from my third hospital stay for my fifth surgery, um, I just watched the clock. And this is a pretty common experience when you, when you talk to people who are using a lot of medications to, to medicate severe pain. You hit that four-hour point and you pop the oxycodone because your life is suffering. I mean, that's even if you're medicating, it's more pain than most people deal with just ever. And, and, and that's what severe pain is like. So every four hours, I pop the next pill. But we talked about dependence and withdrawal. There's this other feature of opioids, which is you develop tolerance to them. And if you're on them around the clock, the tolerance develops quickly. And what that means is you need a higher dose to achieve the same pain-relieving effects. So every week, sometimes every two, I'd have to call my doctor and say, I'm not getting the same pain relieving effects. Can you write for a higher prescription? And so they would, and I would take another higher dose. So I did this for two months before any physician said to me, and it turned out to be my trauma surgeon, who I hadn't seen in a good while. He's the one who said at a follow-up appointment, oh my, you're on a lot of pills, way too far out from the surgery. You've got to get off them. And it was only then that I realized I was in trouble. I had no sense that I might be developing a problem. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Travis Reeder, a bioethicist at Johns Hopkins, who's at Upstate to give a lecture. Um, So this experience that you went through, what sorts of ethical issues did it bring to light for you? A lot of them. <laughs> so it turns out that if your job is to look for, you know, ethical and policy issues in healthcare, a, a really good uh, but also awful way to find those problems is to become a patient mm-hmm. in our healthcare system. So the first one that I found, and it was the subject of the first paper I wrote on the topic, was basically that many, many physicians, well-intentioned, technically sophisticated, good doctors know how to prescribe opioids, have an unrestricted DEA license, so they are entitled to prescribe opioids. They do it as a matter of practice, and then they don't know how to get their patients off the opioids. And so the first kind of argument that I made in the literature was the most obvious claim I think I've ever made in in my career, Um, but it clearly needed to be said. And that is that prescribing responsibly, so prescribing opioids responsibly, requires a plan for deprescribing. 
So you can't take yourself to be an ethically responsible clinician if you are putting patients on a medication that causes dependence, has a risk of addiction, and then not helping them to get free of that medication. So there you go. Pretty simple claim. But if you want to be a responsible prescriber, you have to see the entire life of therapy as within your purview. So that was the first one. It blew up from there. And so, you know, the book ended up from about four years of research where I got interested in, okay, so that was one problem with our prescribing. What are others? And there are many, many problems with opioid prescribing, which is part of what contributed to the crisis in the United States, uh, the drug overdose crisis. And then I realized that opioid prescribing contributed to that crisis, but solving prescribing won't solve the broader crisis because now we have more people dying from heroin and illicit fentanyl than from prescription opioids on a given year. And so now the crisis has spun out broader than the prescriber's uh, purview. So what are other things that we can do to try to rein in the crisis? And that's the full scope of my work now. Because you have to help the people that have already been harmed by this, That right? Exactly So let's right. talk about the ideas for how to solve the epidemic. What are, is it just a matter of prescribing fewer pills or... Absolutely not. So that's one of the crucial lessons that um, if you read about the crisis in the media, you might think supply caused the problem. Supply will be the solution. And the reason that narrative is so seductive is because we're told over and over that between 1999 and 2010, doctors quadrupled their prescribing of opioids. And what happened during that time? overdose deaths from prescription opioids quadrupled is a perfect trend line match. So we know with a very high degree of confidence that overprescribing a glut in the supply contributed to today's crisis. But we've curbed the supply of prescription opioids. Once we started freaking out nationally about this crisis, we started telling doctors, stop killing your patients. And we scared them and we put out a chilling effect on prescribers. It's not necessarily been good. There have been patients who have been abandoned because doctors are just afraid to deal with these dangerous medications. But it did curb supply. We've decreased the volume of prescribed pills. And in the wake, we did not solve the crisis. It got worse. Overdose death rates have increased faster since we decreased the supply of prescription opioid pills. So it's obviously bigger than that, that one problem. So we're still over-prescribing, but at the same time under-treating pain. That is exactly right. This is the, the real central problem. If we, if we focus on the clinical side here, you know, set aside the fact that there are 2.5 million people with opioid use disorder in the country who need help also. If we think about how do we prevent the healthcare system from adding to that number, well, sure, overprescribing was a problem, but you're exactly right to hear in my story there that our reaction to overprescribing risks underprescribing. Because something still has to be done. You still have to treat people's pain. Absolutely. You have to treat people's pain, and some of that pain will call for opioids. So, my own pain, for instance, I do not look back at my story and say, oh God, the lesson of my dependence and withdrawal is that they should have never put me on these devil drugs, right? Like that is not the lesson of my story. Because you needed that pain control. Because I needed that pain control. I was in excruciating pain. Some people are going to be in excruciating pain that responds well to opioids. And so that means we have these much more complicated questions like, 
which pains respond to opioids, when is their use appropriate, and when it's appropriate, how do we minimize the casualties involved? Would you yourself ever take opioids again? I not only would, I have. Uh, so after I came out of withdrawal, I still had another surgery in my future. The hard part of a reconstruction is that oftentimes you have to let the swelling go down for three or six or nine months before you can do the next stage of the reconstruction. So I, they finished putting my foot back together four months after I came out of withdrawal. And it was terrifying as a prospect. I write about this in the book. And I almost didn't do it because it wasn't life-saving. It wasn't an absolute requirement. And my surgeons eventually convinced me, you really need this surgery. Um, and so I exploited my privilege by virtue of being a Hopkins faculty member. I found a really good pain doc, and he helped me think about responsible, minimal use of opioids to take the edge off my pain without over-medicating. And I, I used uh, Percocet, which is oxycodone mixed with acetaminophen. I, I used that for less than two weeks as sporadically as possible. And at the end, I did not redevelop dependence. I did not go through withdrawal. And people do that every day in this country, and it's not a big deal to them. Uh, but for me, it was a really important lesson that these drugs are not black magic. They're just medical tools. And like every single one of our medical tools, costs and benefits, and you have to be able to weigh them up. Did you explore other ways um, to deal with pain? Uh, other non-pill ways? Or did you find anything that was effective? Oh, it's such a good question. So in the aftermath of my injury, no. Um, yeah, I was... Uh, traumatized, largely unconscious, very heavily medicated, immobile. Um, After I came out of withdrawal and began the long-term recovery, I went to physical therapy. And, uh, you know, kind of epilogue to my story is that I have an incredible amount of function given the injury I sustained. My surgeon said I would never walk again. When I started walking, they said I may never walk without assistance. I'd probably use a cane for the rest of my life. Um, I went rock climbing yesterday. We have a great gym here in Syracuse. Uh, so I've got an incredible amount of function and I, I give a huge amount of the credit for that to an incredibly good physical therapist who pushed me for months and was very dedicated um, and made me realize that a lot of what I could do depended on how much pain I was willing to put up with and how much work I was willing to do. So physical therapy, eventually expand that out to exercise therapy, thinking about things like breathing and meditation, uh, which sounds really hokey to a lot of people, but this is evidence-based pain therapy. We have a literature on all of these things, yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong. These are evidence-based pain therapies. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about them. I, like everybody else, uh, do not do as well at self-care as I should. But the better I do, the less my pain affects me long term. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thanks for asking. and uh, Thanks for having me on. Thank you to my guest, who's been a Johns Hopkins bioethicist, Dr. Travis Reeder. He's the director of the Master of Bioethics program and a research scholar at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.